The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, you happy warriors. Welcome to each and every one of you living your life as a happy warrior. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, am solemnly dedicated to revealing for you how the world really does work. And I get a lot of pleasure from hearing from all of you. I love my pin-studded map of the world. Um, I entertained myself a little bit the other night by arranging uh, the the pin countries, the pinned countries, alphabetically. And uh, this is not a comprehensive list because I I left some out because I don't want to take too long on this. But uh, I had fun on it. These are the countries where we have at least five listeners uh, or at least five people who've contacted me from these countries. I'm I'm not reading you out. If if like you are the only person who's ever written to me from a country, you're not going to hear your country on this. But if you hear your country, you'll know that you and four other people uh, are, are listening and you may have actually been one of the people who wrote to me to tell me. And the place to write to me, of course, is at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And there's a little tab there for About Us. And under About Us, there's Contact Us. And that's exactly how you do it. So wherever you are listening, welcome to all of you from Argentina and Angola and Australia, from Burundi, Bulgaria and Brazil and the Bahamas, from Canada, China and Croatia, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Ghana, Hungary, Iceland and Israel, Jamaica, Kenya. Lesotho, Lithuania, Malawi, Mexico, Namibia. Namibia is what used to be Southwest Africa. It's a fascinating country. Five listeners, well, actually five, more than five have told me that they're listening from Namibia, which is great. New Zealand, Pakistan, Philippines, Poland, Russia, uh, Singapore, South Africa, Spain, Tanzania, Uganda, United Kingdom, United States, and Zambia and Zimbabwe. That's a nice listing of countries. That means I could go traveling and I would have friends everywhere I arrived in those countries. I'm not going to be talking today about the uh, George Floyd protests. I'm not going to be talking about the, the looting and the destruction. I'm not going to be talking about statues being pulled down. Uh, not only in the United States, but elsewhere in, uh, for instance, in the United Kingdom, by people who are so ignorant that they don't even know who the people were whose statues they are defacing and demolishing. I'm not even going to go into uh, the question, which I would like to deal with at some time, how this I am now persuaded for certain very specific reasons that I think you'll find interesting. Uh, this is not a protest for justice anymore. No, I'm not sure it ever was. And uh, this is is very simply nothing less than a revolutionary attempt to overthrow Western civilization in general, America in particular, uh, with a lot of well-intentioned people being used 
as useful idiots who have no idea of what is really going on behind the scenes by the people supplying the money and the organizational power uh, and the encouragement to make all this happen, uh, how it even ties in to the COVID virus and the, uh, the shutdown. All of these are, are things that are part of a big topic for discussion, and uh, I certainly intend to deliver that. But why not now? I'll tell you why not now, because minds are set in concrete. Those of you who have decided that this is a, the only way to solve the problem of American racism, which is endemically uh, installed within the very fabric of the country, and America has always been racist and always will be racist. Look, if that's how you feel, nothing is going to change what you are feeling. And if, on the other hand, uh, if you are more inclined to see these uh, actions as destructive and you see that uh, looking at the reality, regardless, right, do I really have to say that I thought that the, uh, the police action on George Floyd was terrible? Look, if you're a long-time listener to the show, you've heard me talk about prosecutorial excess. You've told, heard me talking about police excess. Let me remind you that a number of years ago on this very show, I devoted more than one show to what I saw as a huge problem, which was that um, the government had arranged for the Department of Defense and the Pentagon to supply uh, weapons to the police forces around the country. And I said at the time, you have the ludicrous situation of small little towns with populations of less than 20,000 people where a serious crime is jaywalking or dropping litter and they receive from the Pentagon armored patrol vehicles, assault weapons, uh, virtually enough equipment to equip the SWAT team of New York or Moscow or Johannesburg. Uh, it's it's not a good thing. And I explained at the time that giving a police force a huge amount of these offensive weapons is a bit like giving a little boy an electric drill. It's irresistible. He's not going to be able to stop himself from drilling holes everywhere. Right? That's what happens. And I said at the time that supplying police forces with all this extremely aggressive and heavy-handed weaponry was going to increase the tendency of police forces to behave not everyone obviously you right i i don't have to issue that caveat i'm not but pointing fingers at every single law enforcement officer obviously not but that police departments and law enforcement agencies that should not be battering down doors of citizens at four o'clock in the morning are going to do that when they have the ability to show up in an armored vehicle and they're given the equipment for bashing down doors yes it's going to happen and sure enough uh, i don't want to say i was a prophet because it was pretty obvious anybody knew what was going on uh, and i i spoke about this however all of that notwithstanding, um, if you think 
that uh, that the protests have nothing to do with racial justice, but everything to do with hurting America, uh, then listening to me talking on the subject would be like torture. It would be like me massaging you with warm margarine. No, only the real thing. Butter, of course. So that's why I just don't believe that it is a good time yet. Uh, Passions still run high. Uh, Emotions and feelings control this, not thought. Um, and I've I've just I've seen that that's what's happened. I've engaged in a number of conversations, and I'm not going to do that anymore because I like conversations to be valuable and to be worth the time they take, and uh, that simply isn't possible right now. So uh, I'm going to talk about something that applies all the time everywhere. I'm going to be looking into something that you may have thought about yourself, but even if you haven't. It is relevant to where you live. It's relevant to how you live. And although I'm talking primarily about the relationship between uh, individuals' rights and the rights of the community in a city, this is nonetheless equally applicable to talking about what's go- what may be happening in your own family, Right where it's very possible that you have teenage children and you have discussions about the tension between their rights as independent children and the rights of the family, of the home, of the uh, what passes for the community. And the principles that we are going to uncover by the time we get to the end of today's show are principles you will be able to use. But I'm hoping that uh, it provides just a little bit of respite, uh, a little bit of peace and tranquility and pleasure uh, during a time where almost every discussion, every article, every uh, program is about the tensions roiling Western civilization at the moment, uh, most particularly in the uh, ultimate expression of Western civilization, and that is the United States of America. So that's what we're going to move on to, and I hope you find it uh, useful and pleasant, as I found it useful and pleasant to explore the topic and to record it. And I recorded it in a small harbor on the coast of British Columbia, way north of Vancouver, where the days are long and the sun sets late and the skies never go completely dark during the summer. The harbor is filled with seals in the water and eagles overhead. And this little harbor has been at the heart of this region's fishing industries for about a hundred years. And, uh, there are there are fishermen here who go out every morning who are children and grandchildren uh, and maybe great great grandchildren of people who fished here um, in the last century and uh, and so it's a it, it's it's it, it's a very beautiful place it's breathtaking and at the same time uh, it's filled with with tradition and um, and it's it's as if life hasn't really 
reached this little place. Modernity is kept at bay. Um, the uh, I, I will tell you that it is difficult to contemplate the problems and the perplexing predicaments facing the world from from this location, but uh, but nonetheless, it did stimulate uh, this particular program, and I'll tell you why it is. I was thinking about the uh, the fishing boats, and I was watching one go out this morning. And um, they're heading out and they're fishing for um, salmon, uh, halibut, cod, uh, mostly mostly salmon. And uh, just a few miles further out uh, are gigantic fishing factory ships that come from Japan and come from China. And they're fishing over here. Now, before, before I even get to them, I was thinking to myself that this presents a classic example of what uh, economists call the commons, which is to say that as the fishing boats flock out of this harbor every morning, each fisherman um, has an incentive to catch as many fish as he can. The more fish he catches, the more he sells, the more money he makes, the better he can support his family and pay for diesel for his boat and uh, re- replace his fishing equipment that gets worn out, um, put aside something for when he gets older. All of that is improved the more fish he catches. However, uh, one has to imagine that there comes a point at which if you have enough fishermen fishing and they are fishing with enough uh, skill and competence and maybe even technology, yes, they are fish finders today, electronic fish finders. They, uh, I, I won't go into how they work for the moment. They're not, they don't go out there and find you fish, but uh, they, they sure show you fish under your boat. Um, they do show you schools of fish, but, uh, but, there comes a point when, when using all of this that uh, you are hauling fish out of the ocean, or at least out of this part of the ocean, more quickly than they reproduce and replenish. And then as time goes by, you, you fish out the region. And uh, yes, other fish from other areas could come in, but I don't know that they do, and I, I'm not sure there's, there is too much that uh, I certainly don't understand about fish and that uh, people in general, that the, 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 the world of, of fish sciences doesn't quite get either. Uh, the, the whole mysterious drive of the salmon to return to its birthplace, it's got to be the weirdest thing. I have seen salmon thrashing their way upstream and they exhaust themselves and they actually arrive back at um, uh, small streams and rivers and in in the case of where i saw it in in lake washington and they uh, they struggle in from the pacific ocean into the straits of juan de fuca and from the straits of juan de fuca they uh, struggle into what's called the Seattle Ship Canal, and they even get through locks. There's a special salmon staircase that tourists can come and watch. And then they get into Lake Union, and then they get into Lake Washington, and they swim all the way through Lake Washington, 
which is, you know, 20 miles long, until they reach a specific stream or river that flows into the lake and they go up that river. What on earth drives the salmon to do that? And why should it be that way? I've often thought that uh, that uh, the the salmon should really be a religious symbol. I mean, that zeal and that dedication to go against the current. And that's right, they swim upstream. I'm sure you've seen the wonderful photographs. A number of nature photographers have captured images of grizzly bears um, in British Columbia and in Alaska um, standing in uh, waist-deep water at the top of a little rapids or the top of a little waterfall and um, and waiting for the salmon because the salmon are going to come leaping their way and desperately swimming their way up the waterfall. And they do. I mean, whoever thought a, a salmon could swim vertically up into the air, but that's exactly what they do. They leap and then they thrash their tails for the last and they'll go up, you know, two, three, four foot and of course, uh, the bear is waiting for them at the uh, at the top. And these bears get fat; they eat so well uh, off salmon. But um, what an amazing thing! We we have no idea, no idea at all, why salmon do this. But it's a remarkable thing to behold. So there's a whole lot we simply don't know about fish, but. Uh, you would think, and and certainly from what I know, um, there are fisheries that get overfished. For instance, um, uh, the uh, the area around Monterey in uh, Northern California. Uh, well, you'll remember the the lovely books by John Steinbeck, Cannery Row, for instance, where uh the that area of monterey was a center of of the fishing industry uh and um and they fished and they canned cannery road it was where the fish canning companies worked and uh again they got a point where that ended there were no no more fish there and there also there's a cannery in butedale in British Columbia, which is also, again, fascinating to see. Uh, it's in a, a magnificent inlet. Honestly, it, it puts anything in Norway. You know, you've heard of the beautiful fjords of Norway. Forget it. Forget about it. Um, they pale into insignificance compared uh, to fjords in British Columbia. And up one of these fjords is a, a town called Butedale. used to be a big fish canning operation. It's gone. And you go in, there's like a ghost town. The houses are falling down. The pier is collapsing. And, you know, at some point, I imagine somebody's going to go in there and, and turn it into a, a sports fishing resort or something, I suppose. But right now, uh, it's it's quite creepy to, to see what's happened there. But at any rate, it does seem as if you can uh, overfish an area. So my question is, how do you balance the what would appear to be the the rights of any fisherman to go out and fish right you should be able to do that you can i can all our friends can all these other fishermen around me today can do exactly the same thing and go out there and catch their salmon as many as they want but what happens 
when this activity eventually threatens the survival of salmon in the area. Now, again, I'm not, as I think you probably all know by now, I'm very far from a panic-stricken environmentalist, I can assure you. But, uh, but the indications are that you can overfish. And again, just from a logical point of view, I, I don't know a whole lot about fishing, but uh, I, I certainly know even less about catching, I will confess. Um, I've fished more than I've caught, but I have caught salmon and not not extensively, but um, I don't do much fishing now. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I know I know people love it, and uh, and I, I mean I'm just looking at the the people going out this morning, early in the morning fishing. They're they're doing that, but um, it you know it doesn't particularly grab me so much. And I'll tell you where it really bothered me. It bothered me that by the time I amortized the cost of my gear and uh, a guide, by the way, because I discovered that trying to do it myself without someone who knows the local waters was a total waste. Um, I, I ended up amortizing it out and realizing I was paying about $30, pounds, $30 a pound for salmon. And right there on the dock that I'm looking at, every evening when the fishing boats come back, they sell beautiful big salmon for less than three dollars a pound and so as uh, as a, you can say either as a jew <laughs> or as an econo someone with an economics interest whatever you like it just doesn't make sense to me to to go fishing i'm not even talking about my time because people would say well that's part of the pleasure you're out there fishing so you can't really uh, bill your time cost <laughs> There, but but if I did that, it would be completely ridiculous. As it is, it was it was ridiculous. So, anyways, I'm not uh, I'm not out there fishing, but uh, uh, but but many people are, and they should be allowed to. You would say, but against that is um, I, I I would be uh, I would be sorry if the place gets fished out, and there's no more fishing here. Uh, this is, I mean, fishing has been at the heart of this community. And I'm looking, you know, there must be, I don't know, uh, uh, it's got to, uh, this is a fairly, you know, I don't know, there's got to be several hundred houses rigging this harbor with all the little inlets and, and little coves and bays in this harbor. Uh, there, there's got to be several hundred houses. And for the most part, they're occupied by people who are in some way connected with fishing. And uh, and let's imagine you know, the place gets fished out. What do you do? So how do you balance the rights of you and me and everyone else here to go fishing if they like, right? Those fish don't belong to anybody. They're fish there in the ocean. How do you balance the right of every individual here to feed his family by going out and fishing against a, if you like, a sort of community interest that there should be fish tomorrow and the next day? How do we balance that? Now, I will tell you that uh, I start off with a basic presumption that the good Lord presented humanity with a comprehensive blueprint for coexistence. And so I start off with the assumption that there is a moral solution, that there is a correct moral approach as to how to deal with the question of an individual's rights versus the community's interests. 
And that is what I, I wanted to explore and investigate together with you. I'm recording it on an, a small boat lying at anchor in a small harbor in British Columbia uh, with a number of different members of my family uh, on board. People sometimes look at the boat and say, uh, um, how, you know, how many people does it sleep? And, and of course, the answer is just depending entirely on, on how friendly people are, are willing to be and how tolerant people are willing to be. And uh, this is, uh, it's its not our boat, it's a boat that we've been allowed to use, which we very much appreciate and enjoy. And, um, and Susan and I have always found, as we've been doing this with our family for many, many years already, and always here in British Columbia, what we've discovered is that when family is squished together in a relatively small area <laughs> for a period of time, it's um, it's actually wonderful for family dynamics. You know, you might say you're all going to get on each other's nerves, and you know, I, I hope that isn't the case. There's certainly no evidence of it, but um, the the advantages vastly outweigh whatever drawbacks might exist. So yes, everyone is squished together, but uh, it it is a uh, a wonderful period of of family togetherness that Susan and I cherish immensely. And uh, on top of that is the breathtaking beauty of uh, this part of British Columbia that that has always been a part of our family's memories to so much uh, of an extent that uh, uh, almost, unless we go to a place we've never been to before, and there's so many of those, but um, almost anywhere we've actually been to in the past, we, we arrive at and our faces light up as we recall to one another uh, the memories of what happened here, what year, and which child got left behind on shore because we thought we had everyone before when we upped the anchor and started heading out until um, somebody from the Coast Guard hailed us on a uh, big loud hailer asking if we've got all our children. Yeah, embarrassing it certainly was, but um, but at the same time, quite a memory. Uh, and yes, turned out one of our daughters had got intrigued at the local volunteer fire station, and the fireman, she'd wandered off, and the firemen were showing her around, and she was having the time of her life, and somehow or another, we thought we had everybody uh, aboard, and this this has happened to us more than once. Uh, we We do not think of the movie Home Alone as an improbable comedy. Uh, we see it as a, a, a very normal part of, of uh, big family life. So at any rate, um, jumping back a generation, when, when I was a kid, uh, one of the interesting approaches to education, I remember, was my father giving me broken clocks uh, to try and fix. And um, I ended up with quite a collection of them. And, you know, I'd take them apart and see all the little wheels and the little cogs and the mainspring. And I I ended up knowing a little bit about how clocks work. Of course, all of that is totally and completely useless today because I don't think you could even buy a mechanical clock. Remember those clocks? You wind them up at the back and some of them had a separate winder for the alarm. So there was a, a spring that would ring the bell and there was another spring that kept the clock movement going and keeping time. And, uh, and he used to give me these clocks. Sometimes he'd give me one that worked and, and said, you know, you might want to take it apart and put it together again. I took them apart dutifully. And I don't think I ever 
got one back together again as as it was meant to be i don't think so <laughs> so um and eventually i remember realizing and i did i ask him and he told me or did i realize myself i'm not 100 percent sure but uh, he might have told me but why was he doing, like what was the point of this so it wasn't just to frustrate me no um he wanted me to realize that there's not infinite choices in everything in life and uh, part of the uh, mistaken idea that people grow up with, and particularly in America, uh, the idea that you can be anything you want to be, that's such a bad thing to inculcate in children. And people do it all the time. Uh, educate, oh, you can be anything you want to be. No, that, that really isn't true. That just isn't true. If you are a, a child with a large body build and somehow or another you get it into your head that you want to be a ballet dancer, that isn't going to happen. And if, on the other hand, uh, you are a very uh, lithe, sprightly, small-framed individual and you dream of being uh, an NFL player, most likely, no, bad choice. You cannot be anything you want to be. What you have to do is be who you have to be. And um, that is a, obviously a, a separate topic under the, the heading of uh, childhood education. But um, that's, that's an example of how we mislead in, um, in American contemporary American life today. Another way is in, in suggesting that uh, it's never too late. Oh, it's never too late to do this, or it's never too late. Sometimes it is. You sometimes do miss a train. You sometimes do arrive at the airport too late to catch your flight. Uh, it's simply not true that it's never too late. Sometimes it is too late. Uh, I, sh I should actually do a show on all the mythologies of modern life, the things that people teach, uh, particularly young people, that simply are not true. And another one is the idea that uh, there's so many choices, so many choices. And the truth is, there are not always so many choices. You know that mechanical clock I was telling you about? Do you know how many different ways there are of putting it together again when all the pieces are laid out on the table? And, um, and my mother is, is saying, when are you going to clear it all away? I want to get supper ready. And I'm looking at this collection of, of dozens of little cogs and pins and springs and wheels. And... Um, you know how many different ways of putting it all together? I don't know. There's probably 20 different ways of putting it all together. How many of those 20 ways work? One. That's right. Only one. There's not a large number of choices in how to reassemble that clock. There just isn't. As a matter of fact, there's no choices at all. There is only one way. And when you absorb this disturbing piece of information you're a little bit more open to the idea that there are not lots and lots and lots of different ways of running a marriage. No, they're not. They really aren't. There's a lot of wrong ways and only perhaps one right way. 
sounds shocking, doesn't it? Because, like, well, who are you to tell us what the right way is? Well, you know, who who is your mechanic to tell you the right way to look after your car engine? And who's uh, the the clockmaker or the watchmaker who tells you there's only one way to put together the clock? Who's he? Well, the marriage isn't a clock and it's not a car engine. True, and that makes it more complicated, not less complicated. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's more susceptible to variation and choice. Not at all. Um, how many different ways are there of running a business? Oh, there's, there's an infinite number of businesses. But the idea that a business needs to show a profit, that has never changed. That is an absolutely fixed idea which you can take to the bank, as a matter of fact. If you don't understand that idea, you'll never have anything to take to the bank. And so, how many different ways of running a society? Well, a lot of wrong ones. A lot of wrong ways. How many right ways? Well, actually, one. What are you talking about? Do you you have any idea of how many civilizations there have been in the world? Yeah, one. What are you talking about, Lappin? Well, I fully concede that there are thousands of cultures in the world and in in the history of the world even more. Uh, About 5,000 that have been documented. Did you know it was as many as that? (laughs) This is quite interesting. Yeah, about 5,000 different cultures. And that includes the cultures of um, cannibals in both Africa and uh, New Guinea, uh, where uh, they cannibalized, where they ate ate other people. Yeah, those those are cultures. They're not civilizations, but they certainly were cultures. And uh, how about all the different cultures today in the world that flock to Europe, or to North America. How about them? Yeah, all kinds of different cultures. Civilization, the right way to run a civilization. Well, let me just clarify. I don't think there's anyone doing it right in the world today. But I think the uh, the culture that came closest to getting it right and functioning as a civilization uh, was Western civilization. And predominantly, uh, and I, I, will, I will tell you this, I, I know this is disturbing and it's politically incorrect, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And so I, I, I ask you, I beseech you, I really do, I beseech you uh, to not dismiss what I'm about to say out of hand. Just consider it. Again, we're, we're taught by today's culture to uh, closed-mindedly vigorously reject anything that either doesn't fit the politically correct model or is said by somebody who has been demonized. And so, for instance, there was a recent news item that um, China Airways, the national airline of China, has an in-flight magazine like every other airline does, and um, they... Um, did an article, as these magazines do, on different cities in the world. They did one on London. And the article warned its Chinese readers to be cautious not to go alone 
into areas of London populated by immigrants. And they said dark-skinned immigrants. And they said, particularly if you're a woman. Well, the uproar, the outrage, the indignation. And um, uh, China Airways was forced to apologize. The magazine publishers apologized. But everyone was immediately in rapid backpedal mode. But wait a moment. What's not true about that? What isn't true? Would you not give the same advice to to your sister or your wife or anybody? Wouldn't you say, you know, if you're going to be going out alone, there are certain parts of London you should not walk in. Wouldn't you you tell people the same thing about New York City? Wouldn't you say there were certain places in Brooklyn or the Bronx or even in Manhattan uh, where you'd say to someone, you know, don't walk alone there after dark. That's all that the China Magazine did. China Airs magazine did. Now, I agree, politically incorrect, and that it was totally rejected, as if it was bad advice. But it wasn't. So, uh, very often, information is tossed out, in spite of the fact that it's true, because it offends current contemporary sensibilities. And so, uh, I, uh, I, I ask you, as a favor to me, not to do that, uh, you know, until you've had a chance to weigh it up objectively. And you know, if I'm wrong, then then I'm wrong, and uh, you you can tell me that, and we can discuss it. And if indeed it turns out to be that case, I'll concede and apologize naturally. Uh, but um, what was I going to say? I was going to say that not only is it Western civilization in general, but I'm going to say uh, particularly the English-speaking world. There are crowds and crowds and crowds of people struggling to get to Europe. And many of them are are settling in Germany. Many of them are heading to the Scandinavian countries. But you know where the largest number are headed? Thousands of them are currently camped in uh, migrant camping sites in Calais. Calais is on the English Channel. It's near where the undersea channel tunnel uh, comes out in france uh, it's it's near the rail terminals the bus ter- the the truck terminals and they're trying any way they can to smuggle their way into trains and trucks uh, to head to england they're going to england um, i would say that the height of civilization was attained by the english speaking people western civilization in general Western civilization in general, but uh, particularly if you look at the history of the 20th century, I would say, yes, the English-speaking people. My website is youneedarabbi.com, www.youneedarabbi.com, and uh, read up about something called the Thought Tool Set. It's a three-volume set of uh, three different volumes, each one entitled Thought Tools, each one containing a collection of more than 50 ideas. And uh, what I'd recommend you use it for is uh, conversation. You know, why do you want to have political conversations at the dinner table, right? Uh, Particularly in times of turbulent political intrigue and uh, intense passions, 
you, you don't get very much benefit. If you're lucky enough to be able to have a, uh, a, a dinner, either a family dinner table, or sometimes even getting together with friends for dinner, isn't it nice to be able to say to them, what do you think about this idea? This, this is a moral dilemma. You know, and I've been thinking about it. We we read this from something Rabbi Daniel Lappin presented, or you can leave that out. I don't care. But uh, what Thought Tools this volume, this three volume set does is give you more than 150 such ideas with their biblically based resolutions. But um, it's it's really it's really for everybody. This is not specifically for uh, and exclusively for religious people. It's for open-minded people who are uh, okay with the idea that there might be a viable and valid ancient solution to a very modern problem. And uh, that's what Thought Tools is really all about. Website, youneedarabbi.com. And I thank you, as always, for uh, investing your time on this show and uh, spending uh, a few minutes together with me. Uh, some of you um, extend that still further by communicating with me, uh, either on Facebook at Rabbi Daniel Lappin uh, or on Twitter at Daniel Lappin, yeah, at Daniel Lappin, uh, or on LinkedIn. That's right, there too. So I appreciate all of that and uh, value those contacts and connections. Um, you're also able to uh, connect with us on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Both Susan and I are, are now present there since it is such a, a lovely, modern, practical, usable website. Uh, we connect with you there as well. So we, we value two-way communication, not just uh, passive, not just listening to a show like this or reading thought tools, but uh, so much more of a relationship. And, and yes, that's something we do cherish. And so uh, what I'm discussing is the very disturbing to modern ears, the very disturbing to modern ears idea that uh, there are not Dozens and dozens of multicultural civilizations, all equally good to one another. Uh, this is complete nonsense, and uh, the proof of it is that all these uh, academics and intellectuals who tell you this about multiculturalism and assure you that no civilization or culture is better than any other, funnily enough, not too many of them go to live in Liberia. Not too many of them move to Zimbabwe. Not a whole lot of them move to Bangladesh. There's not a lot of them living in Goa. Yeah, that's the Indian uh, subcontinent. And oh, you'll notice that they are living in places where their privileged and luxurious lifestyle can be sustained, namely under Western civilization. That's where they are and where they take their vacations. Again, very seldom do they go to Somalia for their vacations. They go to Italy for their vacations. Now, uh, I uh, went a little bit further than that, and I said not just Western civilization. And, and again, let me just stress, I don't think Western civilization today is doing it right. I don't think the United Kingdom or Germany or France, certainly not the United States, I'm afraid, uh, none of us are doing it right. 
but there is a right way to build civilization. Closest to it, closest to those who came closest to it in the past, and when I say past, you know, the, over, the, over the last few hundred years, um, were the English-speaking people. And why do I say that? I say that because while Italy and France and Germany have certainly are part of the Western civilization model, and certainly a place where uh, uh, Asians and Arabs and Africans flock because even in its currently impoverished state, Western civilization in the form of Italy and France and Germany is still so way ahead of anything that those various peoples uh, are leaving behind them when they move to to the West. And so, yes, uh, France and uh, Germany and uh, Spain and Italy, yeah, these are parts of Western civilization and way beyond anything that the migrants uh, of the Middle East and North Africa leave behind. Otherwise, they wouldn't go. Uh, But within that family of Western civilization, in my view, the English-speaking people have been um, somewhat unique. They've they've taken it further. They were even closer to the uh, to, to to the the perfect model of civilization, and uh, and for that reason, you find you find a kind of uh, stability, uh, governmental stability, social stability, economic stability. You have found over the years in England and in New Zealand and in Australia and in Canada and, yes, in the North American colonies and then finally the United States of America. Uh, why, you know, why is that? Why, why is it that Italy has had uh, many, many, many forms of government and many uh, redos uh, re of government. France has had uh, numerous iterations, but most of these English-speaking countries have been remarkably stable. Uh, why is it that it was the English-speaking countries that came to the defense of the others? Uh, it was the English-speaking countries that had to go to war to defend the virtues and values of freedom in uh, the middle of the 20th century. And so I do think that there's something special about the English-speaking people. It might have to do with the tradition of Magna Carta 800 years ago, uh, perhaps the, the first time we're aware of outside of biblical thinking. And I say outside of biblical thinking because biblical thinking had a lot to do with it. But um, the, uh, the, the first time, perhaps, that this idea that the ruled are ruled by the rulers only with the permission of the ruled, right? A government by the people and for the people. This grew right out of Magna Carta. And so the, um, the, 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 the legacy that was bequeathed to the English-speaking people uh, by Magna Carta might have a lot to do with it. Uh, it might have to do with the tremendous role that the Bible played in forming 
post-revolutionary England. That may have a lot to do with it. Um, but it, it's something for perhaps another show. But for right now, uh, let me just say that although there is no country that I would point at as saying, oh, you got it right. You know, you've got the, the, the mechanical clock model. You got, you got it all put together just right. All the cogs are in the right. No, I don't think so. But I, along with millions of other immigrants and would-be immigrants, uh, recognize that there are countries that get it far more right than other countries. And those countries that do get it right uh, tend to, to get it right in very much of the same way. You, you follow what I'm saying? Uh, it's not an accident that banks and bathrooms today in Bangkok and Beijing and Bombay all look just like banks and bathrooms look in Boston and Birmingham and Baltimore. But it's only a few years ago that banks in Bombay and Bangkok and Beijing were uh, very different. It was all based on uh, little pieces of gold, and it was people uh, keeping gold in mattresses, and banking didn't exist the way we know it today. And how about bathrooms? Well, bathrooms in those cities were holes in the ground. And if you were very upper class, there might have been a special place for your feet. But the idea of waterborne sewage and cleanliness and hygiene, that moved from Baltimore and Boston and Birmingham to Bangkok, Beijing and Bombay. The ideas of how to run a bathroom or a bank did not move in the reverse direction. Yeah, because people realized there are not a lot of different ways to make the mechanical clock work. They're not. And people got that. And the mechanical clock is a lot like civilization. There's a model for it. There's a way it works. Now, I, I explain all of that uh, to take us back to this question of what do we, how do we deal with the fact when there appears to be a conflict between private property rights, which are vitally important? And by the way, the history of the English-speaking people, which is the name of a wonderful book by Winston Churchill, and uh, uh, in the understanding of the success of Western civilization, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that property rights is an absolutely indispensable Sensible, elemental factor. Can't, can't have it without that. And uh, you take a look at, uh, at one of the big differences between countries that attract immigrants and countries that lose people. Uh, property rights is right there among them. And so we, we, we consider property rights correctly to be of enormous importance. Uh, there are so many of the rules and rituals and regulations in the Torah, in the Old Testament. So much of it revolves around private property rights. And the idea of uh, how unacceptable as it is, even for a king to seize the property of a civilian, no matter how lowly his station in life, can't do that. 
the Bible is immensely protective of private property rights. And, and, uh, and so we have an enormously reliable foundation to rest upon when we speak of the importance of property rights. And yet, here I am in a place where even as an outsider and as a visitor, I can recognize the potential clash that exists between the private rights. In the example I gave you earlier in today's show, the private property rights of fishermen to catch their own fish and to own those fish that they catch, and um, and the rights of the community that the fishery not be exhausted. But that is not the only example I've experienced on, on this little boating, family boating trip. This is not the only example I've seen of a clash involving the commons. And I want to give you, uh, an, I want to tell you what it is that uh, my wife and I noticed um, in a, a little earlier, a few days ago in our trip as we passed through the city of Vancouver in British Columbia we saw something which we were last aware of when we visited Jerusalem um, uh, some while back. Something that Jerusalem and Vancouver have in common, which is also a clash between private property rights and the commons, private property rights and the interests of a community. Tell you what that is as soon as we come back. After I've had a chance to remind you that our brand new website is a destination website. Um, it is rabbidaniellappin.com. And the, the product that I would love to draw your attention to there is something that I really do believe can enhance your life. Uh, I, I think it is very valuable, both with children, raising children, as well as socially, that you have the opportunity to discuss not just other people. And you, you should really do this. You should keep a private journal in the course of a week of how much time you spend in groups of people talking about other people. I think you will be shocked because it is so natural and so normal that we do it without thinking. You know, you get together with people, and before you know it, you're talking about other people. For good or for bad, it doesn't matter. But um, the truth is that we improve ourselves, we elevate ourselves, and we make ourselves better people when we're not talking about other people, but we're talking about, well, the next level is things. Much, much better to talk about things than about people. Right? And next level up, ideas. The best thing of all is to be able to discuss ideas. That is the most elevating. And, um, and so, you know, how do you get launched in that? How do you kickstart that? Well, you get yourself a set of three volumes of thought tools called the thought tool set. And each one contains over 50 ideas worthy of conversation. 50 ideas that, and believe me, uh, I know what I'm speaking of because we have uh, family dinners at least once a week. And, um, and we, we don't even get through one thought tool 
in the course of a family dinner. Uh, because it opens up, each one opens up so many different ideas, particularly when you have people at the table who become enchanted with the idea of exploring uh, a morality idea, m exploring a spiritual concept. And everyone has a thought, even even young people at the table, provided you present it to them in a way that they can understand it. And every single one of these thought tools can be presented in a way that is easily understood by young people. Everybody has an opinion. And now you've got people not talking about other people. They're not gossiping. They're not even talking about things. They're talking about ideas. It's uplifting. It's People go away from that kind of get-together um, feeling very good. And uh, it's, it's something I'd recommend. I'd also, for that reason, recommend you equip yourself with the thought tool set. At any rate, go read more about it on my website, and uh, you'll see if it's something that can enhance your life, perhaps. Um, continuing on this idea that there has to be the, a right way to solve the conflict between private property rights and community interests and community concerns. Now, I don't for a moment think that the solution is obtained by finding a particular verse in Scripture. And the reason for that is that Scripture... Uh, allows you to find different verses for different things you know uh, there are uh, 80,000 verses in um, uh, oh, oh actually that's words not verses but uh, there are thousands of verses just in the five books of Moses so yeah it would be easy to find a verse uh, that in isolation well says pretty much whatever you wanted to say uh, and then there'll be another one on the other side, you know, like there are expressions, right? Uh, a stitch in time saves nine. Uh, you know, um, you, you you must act on a, in a timely way. Um, but then we also have uh, people saying, look before you leap, or he who hesitates is lost. These are all conflicting expressions, each one of which is cited very sincerely um, at any particular instance to try and persuade somebody of a particular course of action. Uh, verses are like that. And that's why ancient Jewish wisdom is a vast, complex enterprise, which essentially endeavors to probe into the mind of God, what God really intended. So um, you've got to be very careful with just sort of throwing out verses. Shakespeare said it so beautifully in The Merchant of Venice, didn't he? Uh, right there in Act 1, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose an evil soul producing holy witness is like a villain with a smiling cheek, a goodly apple rotten at the heart. Oh, what a goodly outside falsehood hath. And so uh, we're going to have to dig just a little more deeply to try and find out how to resolve this question of private property rights against uh, public interest. But before we go to the solution, let's take another look at an example. And I said that my wife and I encountered an example uh, both in Jerusalem and in Vancouver in British Columbia. And the most uh, recent one we saw quite recently. What am I talking about? Well, um, we've been 
uh, on family boating trips in uh, in British Columbia year after year after year after year for decades. We've been doing it for a long time now. And so uh, we um, invariably arrange things. So we spend one weekend um, in Vancouver, docked at a harbor. We, we always go to the same harbor in, in the city of Vancouver. Um, we dock for the weekend because... Uh, um, operating the boat systems on the Jewish Sabbath, on the Shabbat, um, is problematic. I mean, just to give you one example, we don't activate, we Jews do not activate electricity on the Shabbat. The reason is because um, the fact is that when you turn on an electrical device, uh, like a pump, for instance, you are completing an electrical circuit. And when you complete an electrical circuit, uh, there is a minute spark created at the point of contact. Uh, this is why it is that uh, electrical devices like relays eventually wear out. And what happens is there's tiny arcing across the contacts. Uh, even, even a switch that turns on a light, you can sometimes open it and take a look, and you'll see slight burning on the actual point of the contact where it happens. And so uh, on a, a boat, for instance, you don't have a water supply like we do at home where you turn on a faucet and the, the reason that there's water pressure is because they usually arrange for the reservoir to be higher up. That's why throughout the Midwest, where there are no, <laughs> not a lot of hills, um, you'll find every small town has a water tower. There's an enormous tank on top, and you know kids like climbing up there and sitting up on the catwalk on the uh, on the water tower. That's a time honored tradition. Uh, but the reason for that water tower is to keep the the water at a height so as that it's higher than all the faucets in town, and so that when you turn on your faucet, you've got the weight of that water high up in the air, pushing the water into your uh, into your sink or your hands or your bathtub or whatever you're doing. Uh, but on a boat, uh, the water is carried way down at the very bottom, below the water line. One of the reasons for that is that water is heavy, and uh, you want to keep the boat stable, so you put heavy weights down at the bottom, not near the top, where it would contribute um, to a uh, diminishing of the boat's stability. And so how do you get water on, on the boat? Well, you turn on the faucet, and immediately uh, a, pressure, a pressure switch in the water line detects that there's a drop in pressure because there's uh, the accumulator tank has a little bit of air pressure in it and um, the water dribbles out of your faucet. But as quick as a flash, the switch detects a drop in pressure and turns on the pump. So, again, you know, it's, it's a minor matter. Um, you, you know, it, it sort of would, would appear to be a somewhat distant causation. I turn on the faucet and the water, uh, the, 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 the pressure switch feels a drop in pressure, turns on the electric pump, the electrical pump starts pumping and raises the pressure and the water flows out of my, my faucet. At any rate, we prefer not doing that on the Sabbath. And so we always dock um, somewhere on the Sabbath, where we can uh, connect into city water and uh, and and just become um, self-sufficient in that way. I tell you all of that because I wanted to explain that for a number of decades now, really, I mean, for like it's you know more than twenty years actually, uh, we've been going to the same dock in Vancouver uh, for a few days every single summer 
on a small boat. And what we've noticed is the construction of large modernistic skyscrapers. And these contain apartments or condominiums, you know, where, where, where they actually sell the units inside. Some of these are fairly large with, you know, maybe uh, 40, 50 units, maybe even more. I mean, some of them are tall. Um, and some, some of them are exotic. The, the architecture is, uh, uh, is unusual and, and bold. And, um, and we've watched uh, in one particular part of the city. This goes on over a large part of the most desirable parts of Vancouver, I should say. But um, in one particular area overlooking uh, Vancouver Harbor, uh, an area that used to be just open land and parks. I think there were city parks there, if I remember correctly. Uh, but there was certainly, back in the late 80s, I remember there was absolutely nothing there, just um, just, just parkland. Now are occupied by large buildings of condos. And here's the interesting thing. Um, from the deck of our boat while we're having dinner we can look at these as the sun goes down and we notice that the overwhelming majority of them stay dark as night falls and uh, every here you know every here and there lights go on but for the most part these go dark this stimulated us to do a little bit of an investigation and we didn't have to ask very far before we found the solution the solution is that um, the overwhelming majority of these condos have been purchased by Chinese investors or families looking for some security. In other words, it's a landing site in the event of problems. People feel very uncertain about the communist government in China. Where is it going? What's going to happen? There are people who are making serious money in China today. Uh, I think your ability to actually own land in China is probably limited. I don't know the details of how the uh, communist government works there. But uh, if their principles of communism are alive and well, nobody in China is, is, would be allowed to own anything. And in any event, because at any point the uh, the government could become increasingly repressive and maybe even try and clamp down on you or you or somebody else who's, who's trying to build a life there, uh, those who can afford it buy apartments in, uh, in Victoria and Vancouver in Canada and in other places around the world. But I think one of the reasons Vancouver is so popular is it, it's very, very reminiscent of Hong Kong. Uh, people who know both cities comment on that. Very, very reminiscent. And so uh, it's a comfortable place for folks who are concerned about the possibility of having to bail out of Hong Kong, bail out of mainland China, having somewhere to go. And so they, uh, they've purchased these beautiful condos. Uh, and and they're not inexpensive, I can tell you. Uh, but even more than not being inexpensive, this influx of purchases from China has driven up the prices way beyond the reach of most ordinary Vancouverites. As you can imagine, this is causing a little bit of upset. And the government of British Columbia has been trying to grapple with the question of what to do with the massive influx 
of well-moneyed Chinese who are not immigrating. They're not occupying those apartments. They sit empty. And that's why the lights weren't going on. And what is more, we saw apartments in which the lights did go on, but they were going on by electrical timers. (laughs) The apartments were totally unoccupied, but uh, lights went on and then went off, uh, operated by timers. And so uh, what's going on here? Well, you have large, now large parts of Vancouver, important parts of the city, are empty they're almost um, ghost towns it can be a little creepy where in where you would expect right and and think of areas perhaps in in your towns where there are large um, buildings large uh, apartment buildings or condo buildings in dense uh, in, in providing some dense population uh, don't you find fairly lively life and instead, um, where you'd expect with all this dense population to have sidewalk cafes filled in the evenings and people walking on the streets, the areas are a little ghost-like, very problematic. What happens to the, the dry cleaner on the corner, right? He was counting on, uh, on the numbers, he knows that if you have a certain number of, of units of habitation, it warrants a, uh, a dry cleaner store. And he had no idea that these apartments were not being occupied. And so you've got uh, these apartments. The city planned on, you know, the use of a certain amount of electricity and the use of a certain amount of water, and there'd be taxes on these things. And instead, these apartments, in huge numbers, sit vacant all the year. Sometimes people come for a few weeks in the summer. But for the most part, they're vacant. And it's causing real problems. So once again, you say, on the one hand, you know, if I'm going to spend a million and a half dollars on a Vancouver, British Columbia apartment, I can jolly well do what I like with it. None of your business. If I want to occupy it, I'll occupy it. If I want it to sit vacant, I'll have it sit vacant. It's mine. Is that right? Well, let me tell you a little about a little bit about Jerusalem. That's right. You uh, you would think that Jerusalem is immune to the problems of Vancouver, right? The two cities could hardly be more different. Our website, youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. It doesn't matter which avenue you use to get there. Just go there and admire our new website. Uh, You can comment on the website as well on some of the teachings there, which I think you'll find useful. I know we find it fascinating to see the interaction that goes on. We value that. And uh, also read up about a product I did want to tell you about. It's a fantastic resource called the Thought Tools Set. It's three volumes of Thought Tools. As I've said earlier in the show, it's more than 150 spiritual strategies, more than 150 ideas that have real practical import. And um, you'll be able to get a bit more of a sense of it if you read up about it on the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Ladies and gentlemen, that's right. 
not welcome back an entire gender spectrum. No, welcome back ladies and gentlemen. Because if there is one thing that you are entitled to count upon in exchange for your investment of time in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, it is knowing that what you will experience here is how the world really works. Not the way people would like the world to work, not the way intellectuals and academics think the world works, not the way some people wish the world works. No, on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, you will get what, how the world really works. Nothing more and nothing less. And uh, one of the ways the world really works is that there is something called men and there's something called women. There's a gender that is masculine and there is one called feminine. And that is all there is. All of which has absolutely nothing to do with the topic under discussion, which is the city of Jerusalem. I told you that uh, Susan and I noticed something in Jerusalem that matched something in Vancouver, British Columbia. What was it? Turns out that there are entire neighborhoods in Jerusalem, neighborhoods very popular with English-speaking people from uh, Canada, New Zealand, uh, Australia, South Africa, the United Kingdom, America, um, who uh, they love visiting there. Again, uh, these are people who've made a few dollars, and they think to themselves how nice it would be to have a home in Jerusalem. And so there are even um, in contractors, there are people who put up buildings, specially catering to Anglo investors. Now, they're not ordinary investors because there is an emotional connection as well. They are not buying a condominium in Jerusalem because they couldn't find one to buy in London or Manchester or Auckland or Sydney. No, they specifically want one in the holy city of Jerusalem. How often do they use it? Well, uh, they might go for the pilgrimage festival of Tabernacles, of Sukkot, uh, which usually falls in the September-October time of the year. Uh, it's possible they would go also for Passover, which falls in the spring, around about Easter time. And, um, and they might go, you know, for a, a week or two in, in both instances. And so very often these folks... Uh, own apartments and condominiums in Jerusalem, which they occupy for uh, a month a year, two months a year, maybe, maximum. The rest of the time, they don't rent it out because they don't need to, right? They're not, they're not needing to um, find help in paying the mortgage. They're, they've made a few dollars. And uh, one of their luxury, you know, other folks go on, on luxury cruises <clears throat> or uh, do exotic things. These people, for them, uh, owning some real estate in Jerusalem is a very high P 
peak of attainment. They're excited. They love it. It means something to them. They feel they've got a little stake in the Holy Land, and they love arriving for a visit to Jerusalem, and they may go twice a year, maybe three times a year. They love having their own place to stay at instead of having to stay at a hotel. So far, so good, right? But you can see what's coming. And sure enough, there are, again, neighborhoods in Jerusalem where, based on the population density, based on the housing, you would say these places are alive and popping and booming and exciting. And, you know, you just look at a map or, or, or look at the neighborhood and you say to yourself, wow, with all, with all this population here, these, this has got to be a terrific place. Um, you know, in the evening, there's going to be lots of people out there. And you go and you explore it, as we did, and it's a ghost town, right? Number of neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are that have been popular with Anglo-speaking, with English-speaking people for a while. Well, they're ghost towns, with the exception of the few weeks around about uh, Tabernacles and around about Passover. Uh, when they fill up and they really are popping and wild and crazy and, uh, and, and, and bustling. But the rest of the year, nothing. So what happens if you're a small grocery store in that neighborhood and all of a sudden, over the course of, of a short space of time, apartments that had been owned by year-round dwellers are now occupied by folks who are only there a few weeks a year. And as more and more apartments go that way, what happens to your livelihood? More than that, what about the city of Jerusalem? Which, since the 1967 war, when Jerusalem was reunited under Israeli leadership, uh, the the city has been transformed. It's one of the the liveliest, I mean, certainly uh, in Israel, but even, even in terms of world cities. Um, there, there are festivals, there are celebrations, and there's restaurants, and there's and there's theatre. It's it's a remarkable uh, city with a lot going on, and so they are very alarmed because large sections of the city are now uh, owned by um, condo owners who only use them for a few weeks a year. And so sections of the city stay dark year-round, not much going on. Uh, the tax the tax base in in terms of uh, usage of of water and power and, and and you know the the viability of local businesses all of this takes a real beating so what do we do about this after all somebody says i've worked hard all my life and uh, i have a few dollars to spare i'm not going to buy i'm not buying a ferrari i'm not buying a yacht I'm going to buy an apartment in Jerusalem. And you know what? I'm going to do with it exactly as I choose. It's mine. I pay property taxes. Leave me alone. I'm going to occupy it for three weeks a year, four weeks a year, five weeks a year. That's it. And the rest of the time, no, I don't want anyone else using it. I'm not renting it out. It's going to stay empty. It's got my stuff in it. I don't want it used by anybody else. And how do you argue with that? After all, private property. We all support the idea of private property. What are you going to say? But uh, along comes the city of Jerusalem and says, uh, this isn't good for the community. 
This is bad for the city. And like Vancouver, Jerusalem is trying to figure out ways of taxing this, of trying to say, well, if uh, if if your uh, property, if your condominium is only occupied for X months a year, then this is the additional property tax you have to pay every year for owning an empty apartment. And the property owner says, what are you talking about? Where's the morality of that? That's outrageous. I bought this property on the understanding that I can use it any way I wish or not use it any way I wish. You know, maybe I'm not, maybe I only intend buying it in order to resell at some point down the road. All of this is legitimate. What do you mean coming along and telling me you're going to tax my usage because you don't like the way I use it? What's that all about? And in both Jerusalem and Vancouver, the cities are grappling because in both cases, coming from a biblical perspective of morality, in the case of Vancouver more distantly than Jerusalem, but nonetheless, Vancouver through Great Britain and through the traditions of private property that Great Britain originally evolved out of a belief in the Bible, uh, Jerusalem, as I say, much more directly, there is this awkwardness because they both recognize that private property is a valid good that we we value the idea of people owning their property we're not we're not communist china we don't want everybody to be a tenant of government and by the way the proof that that doesn't work well is in america public housing what a calamity that is right no it does work better when people own their own property we recognize that but what happens if people who own their property don't want to live in it. Now what are we going to do? That becomes a real problem. How do we deal with it? How do we find a moral solution? How do we balance the needs of the city of Vancouver, the needs of the city of Jerusalem? Uh, how do we balance the needs of the community with the rights of the private individuals? Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Visit us there and uh, take a look at some of the interaction. There are places where other readers have commented on the things that Susan and I have posted there. And it's it's becoming a fairly lively little community. Uh, We want to make it even more so. That's what we're working on. So with your help, uh, we look forward to that. While you're there, read up about the Thought Tool set because I think it is something that if you don't already possess, it's a very small investment to make sure that you really can turn gatherings into uplifting experiences. You'll see what I mean when you read about it. I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin, coping and struggling with the perplexing problems and puzzling predicaments of modern life by utilizing the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom, trying to explore a basic idea, which is that the good Lord did present humanity with a comprehensive blueprint for coexistence. That's what the Bible is. When God gave a blueprint to Moses on Mount Sinai, 
there was a blueprint for how human beings can live together. And the truth is that uh, if every single one of God's children was an isolated, lonely individual living a subsistence lifestyle, disconnected from all other people, he wouldn't need the Bible. If every man and every woman all of a sudden disconnected from everybody else, moved far away and was totally off the grid, to employ a a contemporary metaphor, uh, completely off the grid, isolated from everyone else, guess what? I I, I can't see what value the, the Bible would be to you. Really, I mean, yeah, you know, fine. Book of Psalms, there'd be things perhaps that would be uh, valuable and uplifting. But by and large, the entire marvelous structure of the Bible providing the, the blueprint for human coexistence, you wouldn't need it all. But since we do live together, it provides us with the moral solutions to the very ordinary uh, issues and struggles and matters that, that crop up all the time. So let's now stipulate, if you would, that um, somebody owns a piece of land and there's nobody else anywhere near around. That person should be able to do whatever he likes with that land, right? Now, if there's a river running through your land, uh, you can't do things that impact people who live downstream of you, right? Let's imagine you decided to stop up the river, right? You're now impacting their lives. So although you own this land and you own the the, the benefits of the river running through it, you can't do things, even if those other people are 100 miles away, but you're going to stop the river up now so they don't get any water at all, you can't do that. Uh, neither can you poison the river. So these are things that are basic, we all understand. So in this situation we're stipulating, how about we take the river out of it? Let's not have a river. So there you own a piece of land, nobody else anywhere near around, no one, nowhere, many, many, many miles, you're, you're all by yourself. You can pretty much do what you like with that land, right? it's hard to think of anything you shouldn't be allowed to do. It shouldn't be anybody else's business what you do, right? Again, hypothetically, no other people involved. It's your land. The morality is that you can do whatever you like. It's your land. So with nobody else impacted, with no one else in the vicinity at all, you have theoretically limitless property rights. Your land use rights are extensive. You can build a building, you can uh, plant corn, uh, you can dig a mine, you can do whatever you like. It's nobody else's business because there's nobody else around who should have any rights or any say at all over your land. But I also have to point out to you, while this is sounding very appealing to you, I'm sure, I need to point out that you similarly have no benefits at all of other people near you. What do you what do I mean by no benefits? Well, there's no museums or art galleries if that's what you're into. Uh, there's no sporting facilities, there's no sports teams. 
Um, there's also nobody offering you any good prices for your land because there's no town encroaching that uh, will eventually need development. No, um, there's no laundromat. There's no running water. There's no social connection. Um, there's also, depressingly, no way for you to be a giver, right? There's absolutely nothing you can do for anybody else because there's nobody else around. There's no shopping mall, and uh, there's no electricity, there's no internet. Um, you are totally dependent on you, totally and completely. Nobody else around. By the way, this is called subsistence living, because if you don't plant, you will starve. No work, no eat. That's how this works. And in exchange for that, you've got theoretically limitless property rights you can do whatever you like on that land because you know why because you own that land it's pretty straightforward <clears throat> now the other extreme as far away as you can get from that idea of nobody else around you're all by yourself there you go whatever you wish well that is the other extreme is what scripture refers to as a city now, you've got to understand that when the Bible uses the word city, and, and again, uh, I'm not going to go into the Hebrew uh, meanings of the word and the etymology, but if we were to study this in the Lord's language, in the, in the language of Hebrew, uh, the word city, which in Hebrew is an ear, uh, would actually tell you quite a bit about what I'm about to tell you now, <clears throat> which is that the city means something. In biblical nomenclature, it has a designation. It's not just a big bustling place. It may be, it may not be. Uh, and that's why it is, think about the first city in scripture, right? Where's the very first city? Built by Cain. That's right, Cain killed Abel. And one of the things he did thereafter was he had a son called uh, Hanoch, or in English Enoch, and then he built a city for his son, named it for his son. Right, And there's uh, a whole lot of explanation for that. I've presented some of that in the Genesis Journeys programs uh, on my website. Um, but for now, let's just acknowledge that for, shall we say, a rather limited population on the planet, I mean, Adam and Eve, Cain, maybe some sisters, I mean, not, not a whole lot going on there. A city? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's why it is that uh, we find in the book of Deuteronomy, when Israel is now approaching the land and Joshua is going to be taking them into the land, and they come through Transjordan. They come through the east bank of the Jordan River, and they're about to arrive at the Jordan River, and they're going to attack the city of Jericho. And that's going to be not in the book of Deuteronomy, but in the very next book, which is the book of Joshua. But just then, uh, two tribes, Reuben and Gad, come to Moses and they say, you know what, we really like it over here. How about if we settle this area? Moses is very upset. He says, what do you mean? And you're not going to help your brethren defeat the inhabitants of the land to enable them to inherit the land? They say, no, 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 heaven forbid you misunderstood us. We have every intention. We will, uh, we will join the battle. Just let us build cities for our families here. And then we'll come over and help you... Uh, defeat the inhabitants so everyone else can get their land so uh cities for two tribes they need cities or even more than that turns out 
that there are how many cities built for the Levites? Well, actually, 48 cities for the Levites. One tribe, and again, you figure it out, right? We know, we know roughly how many people left Egypt, even if there's been a little bit of multiplication since then. Uh, one tribe of Levites needs 48 cities. Two tribes of, of Reuben and Gad need cities. We're not there yet. You see, cities are not the result of agricultural villages growing. Cities are much more than that. And uh, cities grow, as Jane Jacobs, a, a wonderful, um, I, I'm going to call, call her, she was most known for the area of city planning, but be that as it may, uh, she gets it exactly right. She understands cities. She, she had a wonderful book called The Economies, or is it singular? The Economy of Cities, I think she called the book. But uh, at any rate, uh, cities are places that are exactly the opposite of what I just described. I described a place where you had no contact with other humans and therefore almost limitless property rights. You know what a city is? It's where you have extensive interaction with other people and severe limitations on property rights. And the more interaction with other people, the less property rights there are. In other words, just think about this for a moment, right? Realize that if, um, let's compare suburbia with downtown. And again, I always use New York as the comparison because it's such an extreme in the United States of America. Take Manhattan, where you've got literally millions of people in a tiny little island. And in a few city blocks, the population can exceed that of a, of a town elsewhere in the country because you've got, you know, 60-story buildings uh, containing hundreds of apartments. And you may, you may have a few of those within a, a block or two. It's amazing, right? Now, compare that with um, suburbia. Go out onto Long Island or up to Westchester County, and now you still are not living in isolation. This is not like the example I gave you, but, uh, you know, you, you might be living on a quarter acre or a half acre or in Westchester County, t- County two acres. You've got neighbors, but you don't have population density like New York. The result is New York is in, in Manhattan. It's very stimulating. There's shops open 24 hours. A lot of people in New York tell me one of the reasons they like New York is you can buy anything you want any time of the day or night. Me personally, yeah. It's not a big draw, but I can understand for other people, uh, it does fill them with a sort of sense of vibrancy and vitality, things going on, fine. Uh, You know what, out on Long Island or Westchester County, no, you cannot find stores open every time of the day or night. There are advantages of living in close proximity to other people. How's about rights on your property? Um, If you live on a quarter acre on Long Island or uh, two acres in Westchester County, um, you you cannot open a factory on your land. It's 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 zoned um, uh, residential. Uh, you shouldn't even be able to open a church or a synagogue, in my view, because that changes the basically that changes the deal for your neighbors. It's not fair to them. Um, you cannot keep lions and tigers 
on your property even if you've got two acres in westchester county they're not going to let you keep lions and tigers if you've got a quarter acre in on long island and you decide you want to uh, slaughter your own beef and you bring in uh, animals and every uh, friday you have a little slaughtering program so you've got beef for the week not going to be allowed you can't do that in a residential neighborhood but you can do a whole lot of other things. You've got space. Uh, the, 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 the regulations exist, but they're not extensive. Now you move into an apartment uh, in a 60-story building with hundreds of other units. Guess what? They're going to tell you whether you may or may not even keep a cat and a dog. They may tell you all you can keep is a goldfish. This building doesn't allow pets. They may tell you that. Uh, they will regulate the the number of uh, visitors you can have they'll regulate uh, the noise at any time of the the day or night um i don't know about america but in the city of zurich in switzerland if you're living in a building with more than a certain number of units you may not flush your toilet after 10 o'clock at night right because there's common plumbing <laughs> throughout the building and it's disturbing. The plumbing gurgles as, as people uh, do whatever they're doing. So it's not, I mean, it sounds preposterous. It sounds ludicrous, but it isn't. Because if you're living to that extent on top of other people, it comes with a lot of advantages. But yes, flushing your toilet after nighttime can wake people up. Pipes run up and down the building. Mustn't do it. Sorry about that. Leave, leave the toilet, flush it off to 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning, whatever the regulations say. But that's the deal. That's what you, what you have to submit to in exchange for the benefits of living with other people. Do you follow? So in general, the rule is the more isolated you are from others, the fewer the restrictions, but also the fewer the benefits, obviously. There are benefits from living in close proximity to other people. You make more money when you live in close proximity to other people. That's right. That's why money is made in cities. It's one of the reasons cities grow constantly. That's one of the natures of cities, because a city becomes a, a human magnet. It brings people in. And more and more people come. And that's to the benefit of everybody there. But you do relinquish some of your property rights. Does that make sense? That's how it works. And so to go back now to the idea of uh, fishing, for instance, um, yeah, what, um, what a country does, and again, British Columbia does this, what what countries do is, first of all, they impose territorial waters, right? And, and they establish, they say, we are unilaterally de- declaring that our country's rights extend three miles out from our coastline, 12 miles out from our coastline. You can say 20 if you like. It's, I mean, it shouldn't be the United Nations business, none of their business, the United Nations is a farce. It, it shouldn't even exist. It certainly shouldn't be an expense. But um, a country can unilaterally say, this is our property and our navy will protect it. Now, if you're a country with no uh, naval ability, you have no military power, you, you lack the ability to protect your waters. It's one of the reasons that countries do need navies. Uh, China is a an example right now of a country 
which is very uh, aggressively flexing its military muscles. And the notion that, oh, I mean, basically all the Western crybabies who've become impotent little girly nations run to the United Nations. They run to the international court in The Hague in Holland, and they say China's expanding its, 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 um, na- its sea rights. It's expanding its, its, its borders and its territorial waters have expanded. Oh, oh, oh. And so The Hague issues a ruling. Oh, they're out of line there. And you know how much attention China pays to that? Frankly, if, if I was uh, advising the Chinese, they're doing exactly what they should be doing. Uh, acting in their own interests, and they they've uh, they've spent the the time, they've invested the energy and the money in building a, a navy, and and the stuff's all scary, by the way, but it's it's a it's how the world really works, and they are taking over the Spratly Islands, they're keeping out other people's fishing boats from their areas, and yes, that they're exactly right to be doing that because they they can do it. Well, might doesn't make right. No, that's true in interpersonal relationships, but it's not true in international relationships. I'm sorry, but actually their might does make right. And perhaps a discussion uh, to be expanded upon in another show. But um, uh, the rules really are different for countries, and it is to our tremendous detriment in the United States of America that uh, we've had successive governments that have eroded our military capability to such an extent that um, other countries are noticing that and are increasingly aware of our inability to uh, advance our interests, let alone protect them. Uh, but in, in, uh, in theory, that's what happens. So British Columbia says, okay, fine, our territorial waters extend to here. If you are a, um, a Japanese factory ship or a Korean factory ship, you are not allowed into our territorial waters. And um, again, I think we are probably able to, we can look forward to a time in the near future where Chinese fishing uh, boats may well start increasingly ignoring this rule and essentially defy uh, North America to uh, to stop them. What are you going to do? And uh, it it becomes a real question because you you not only need military strength to protect your interests in this area, you also need the moral willpower to deploy it, and we lack that almost as seriously as we lack hardware. Uh, but once you've established your uh, territorial waters, what you now do is uh, you you have to do an auctioning system or a licensing system specifying how much everybody can fish. And that's exactly what the point at which uh, the East Coast fisheries uh, arrived at, uh, where the government even was paying people to destroy fishing boats, to reduce the amount of fishing. It had got out of hand. Again, it is what economists call the problem of the commons. And the oceans are there, belongs to all the citizens, so it becomes uh, a conflict of interest. Fishermen have the interest of hauling out as much as they can, and um, and the larger community has an interest in keeping fish around so as that we don't overfish the area and take fish out of the water faster than they can reproduce, right? We, we did that during the whaling era, 
And indeed, were it not for the discovery of oil, America would have gone dark because back then America was lit with whale oil and began to be overfished. Same problem again. And similarly, Jerusalem and Vancouver, yeah, the cities, the cities do have a right to say, look, there are enormous benefits. This property you own wouldn't have nearly the same value if it was out, um, you know, 50 miles from the Grand Canyon. You chose to buy your home in Jerusalem or Vancouver precisely because of the benefits of the city. Uh, that benefit comes with a restriction on your property rights. And uh, exactly what mechanism we'll use, I don't know, but we are going to come up with something that makes it detrimental to you on some level to leave your house empty. We want you to find a way. We're not forcing you to live in it, but we are forcing you to either have relatives live in it or rent it out, or if you really don't want to do that, then we are going to tax you in a way that will somehow enable us to maintain the vitality of the city, even though uh, you are um, uh, in violation of the deal, as it were. Anyway, that is the overview of um, a, a biblical approach to property rights based on the biblical idea of a city with all its advantages and all its disadvantages, and um, and how this applies to uh, problems that economists grapple with all the time. Fortunately, I am uh, more than just an economist. I have a belief that the good Lord did provide us with a marvelous matrix of morality called the Bible, which provides us with guidance and insight into exactly how every predicament resulting from human interaction can best be resolved in the most moral way possible. And that is as far as we can go in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed for spreading the word. You're doing great on that, by the way. The uh, number of downloads and listenerships continues to climb every week, which fills me with exhilaration, which I hope you can even hear in the show itself. And uh, I also would like you to visit our website at rabbidaniellappin.com and take a look at what is in the store, whatever is available, because, uh, and this, I always hate doing this, but it's an inevitability, as, as everybody knows, prices, unfortunately, are going up just in order to keep us functioning. Uh, we haven't raised prices for, I believe it's over four years, and uh, July the 1st, 2020, that's right. Uh, July the 1st of this very summer is when prices are going to be going up. So uh, sorry about that. It's just uh, how things are. And I do hope that uh, you are, in fact, having a very, very good week along with your finances and your faith and your friendships, and your family, and your fitness, your physical fitness, all of that here on the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show. So thanks very much indeed for being part of it. Be together with you next week. And until then, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin saying God bless. Sp- 
distilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 